Well, I want to start off with a couple of questions. When was the last time you felt just deeply rested? When was the last time you caught yourself enjoying something so immensely you couldn't get the smile off your face? When was the last time you rode a bike, flew a kite, did something creative, maybe with your hands? When was the last time you just absorbed the feeling of the sun on your face, felt the wind on your skin, maybe even the sand between your toes? Today begins a new series, Everyday Spirituality, Connecting God to the Ordinary. And the logic behind this series is Psalm 24.1, which says, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. Everything in this world was created by God, and therefore, everything matters. Or, if you'd prefer a New Testament verse, Colossians tells us that Jesus didn't come in order to beam us up to heaven in disembodied spirits to play on harps. Christ came with a global mission to redeem all things in heaven and earth. Therefore, everything, including the ordinary bits that make up our lives, matter to God. Or... In the words of one of my heroes, Abraham Kuyper, I actually have him on my Yeti mug, him and C.S. Lewis on one side, you know, and Lewis and Kuyper on the other. In the words of Abraham Kuyper, there's not a square inch in the whole domain of, the, of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, that's mine. There's not one domain of our lives where Christ doesn't say, that belongs to me. I'm the Lord of all. So to say that Jesus is Lord means everything belongs to him, and therefore everything can be coordinated in relationship to Jesus. Or, as we like to say here at Christ Church, all of life is all for Jesus. So we're beginning a series today on everyday spirituality. We're going to take the next few weeks to go through some of the more ordinary aspects of our lives. And we're going to talk about what it looks like for those aspects of our lives to belong to Jesus. Now, today I bit off quite a bit. I hope it's not more than I can chew. I have 11 points. All right, okay, yeah. So that means one of two things. It, it means, number one, that you're going to have to listen fast. I have 11 points. It also means, the good news is, is if you don't like a point I'm on, you don't need to wait very long until I get to another point, so that's good too. I'm calling this sermon 11 Biblical Maxims on Leisure, on Leisure. And uh, I have biblical in parentheses because I've found over the years that sometimes non-Christians are better at leisure than Christians, which is kind of weird and sad. Um, but I, I also, uh, I'm calling these maxims, a maxim of, in case you know, it's a very pithy, short statement about something, Okay. Um, and so that's where we're going today. We're going to talk about a subject we don't talk about very often, and that subject is leisure. And of course, I wore, I couldn't just wear my Monday through Friday everyday sermon kind of shirt. I had to kind of step it up and get a shirt that kind of makes me feel like I'm in a leisure moment as I preach to you, my colorful shirt. So, all right, so let's go with no further ado into our first maxim. Maxim number one, leisure is not what we think it is. 
You know, as I begin to think about leisure and kind of the things that go into my mind, and since I'm a part of North American culture at this late modern period, a number of things come into my mind. Maybe I'm twisted, but maybe these are part of the general culture. And one of them is a guy named Austin Powers and those leisure suits. Here's a regressive adult who seems like didn't really quite uh, kind of develop out of, you know, the, the uh, adolescence period. Or when we think of a man of leisure, we think of somebody that's into expensive cars and expensive yachts and expensive women, you know. Or maybe we think of those complacent individuals on hovercrafts from the movie WALL-E, who all, they're just obsessed with comfort and there's just a convenience, and they just, they live very shallow lives. Their life is kind of ended. See, these negative images are what kind of we associate with leisure. Some of you might even feel a little bit uncomfortable talking about leisure in church. But if we actually go back to the history of the term, we find out that leisure actually is a much more robust picture than our culture gives us. The word leisure, I'm going to give you some Latin and Greek, not always going back to the root helps, but in this case, going back to the roots actually helps us ground what leisure is. The word leisure, um, it, it comes from the Latin word licere, which means to be permitted. So leisure is the time in our lives where we don't have to work, so we have permission to do other things that we might enjoy. Now, not everything that we do when we're not working is leisure, mere inactivity or idleness is not leisure. So that's why the Greek word is also helpful. The Greek word for leisure is skole, from which we get the word school, okay? And it's this idea of uh, something that is associated with health and growth and development in which we come to see the world in a new way. So if we put these two together, we can come up with a definition of leisure, at least my definition of leisure, which I'm going to give you right now, which I think is pretty good. I've been thinking about leisure for a while. Leisure is a non-work type of activity or inactivity. If it's an inactivity, I would say an intentional inactivity, but a non-work type of activity that enriches our humanity, connects us to some aspect of reality we're not in touch with, and leads us to a new perspective. So that is a better definition of what leisure is. So leisure is something that you do that engages a part of your humanity that is not engaged when you work. And as a result of that activity, you feel more alive. Maxim number two. I said, hold on to your seatbelts. Number, number two, God invented the weekend. Now, now, work is good, okay? Work is a good thing. Next week, my boss from the Center for Faith and Work Los Angeles, Steve Lindsay, is going to be right here, and he's going to be preaching about work. And you don't want to miss that because he is one of the living experts on work and faith. But today... We want to move past the first six days of creation and focus on what happens immediately after God worked. God rested from his work, Genesis 2, 2 to 3. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done. God invented the weekend. He stopped work, and he rested. But why? Why did God stop work and rest? Here's what we know. God did not stop to rest because God was absolutely exhausted. You know, if there's, a, there's a doctrine about God. It's called God's aseity, which means that God is completely 
self-contained and all-powerful. There's nothing God cannot do. God never runs low on energy. God never runs out. Then why? Why did God not work? It's because leisure is intrinsically good. We were made in God's image, and we were made to regularly put work away and engage in other ways of being alive. It's built into our nature as part of God's creatures. Of course, leisure is going to look different for different kinds of people because we all do different kinds of work. I know John, who read the scripture beautifully. Thanks you, John. John and his wife, they like to garden, okay? There's another John in our church that works as a gardener. He should not be doing gardening as his leisure activity, okay? Uh, some of you never get a chance to write, and you love writing, and you wish you could write you know, more poetry, and so your day off comes, and what do you want to do? You want to write, and there's some of you who write for a living, and another day of writing would be drudgery. So, you know, it just really kind of depends on what your work is in order to determine what your leisure might look like. Maxim number three, fatigue is not next to godliness, okay? Neither is cleanliness, in case you're wondering, okay? But fatigue is not next to godliness. Some Christians have bought the myth that leisure is something we need to earn. It's very strange to be people that say it's all about grace, but we think we have to earn our leisure. Even worse, some Christians believe leisure is unbefitting a Christian. Life is short and heaven is long and so many people need to hear about Jesus. There's no time to rest. No, we must walk around with restraint and denial of pleasures and absolutely serious and strident and marshal a certain kind of self-control. We need to display frugality in everything, especially our emotions. Repress that stuff, will you? Yeah. No. Jesus said, I came that you might have life. You know, when people criticize Jesus, the one thing they thought they could do is they could complain about the way he had a great time at parties, a glutton and a drunkard. Like, Jesus, you are just having, you just enjoy life a little too much for being someone who's holy. Jesus didn't come to take away our humanity. He came to give us back our humanity, to show us what humanity looks like. And when you meet a Christian who has this kind of posture, they've turned their faith in Jesus Christ into a prison. It's not pretty, and it's not what we were made for. Irenaeus of Lyon said, the glory of God is man fully alive. Jesus came to give us our humanity. 1 Timothy 6, 17 says, God richly provides us with everything to enjoy. So when you read the Bible, one of the things that's shocking is the Bible is crammed full of feasts, of parties. They've got like, you know, the fattened calf and you've got to, you know, get the spit out and you've got to have the, the, the lambs on that thing. And it, I mean, the Bible's got barbecues going on and there's grapes and there's pomegranates and there's olives and there's dates and there's milk and there's honey. And God's like, celebrate. I mean, Deuteronomy 14.26, you shall spend the money for whatever you desire. Oxen or sheep or wine or strong drink. One of the translations says wine or beer. I don't know. Whatever your appetite craves. And you shall eat there before the Lord your God and rejoice you and your household. So the Bible is full of feasting. There is a place in our lives to enjoy the pleasures that God has given us with a glad heart. Maxim number four. 
Sometimes you need a nap. Can I get an amen in the house? Amen. All right, amen. One of my favorite passages is 1 Kings chapter 18 and 19. It's the story of the exhaustion of Elijah. You know, Elijah is a hardworking prophet. And he has just had one thing after the next, okay? He's had to confront Ahab. That was a hard day of work, all right? Um, he's had, he had a stressful day with the prophets of Baal. There was a whole gang of them he had to go up against. And then he's got this lady named Jezebel, not exactly the best name. She's out to get him. And on top of that, there is a, a drought which leads to a famine. And by the time we get to chapter 19, Elijah is exhausted. He's alone. He can't do it anymore. And he sinks into this depression. And we know he's really, really depressed because the text tells us he was so depressed that he wanted to die. That's pretty bad depression. And what's amazing is God's response. You know, God has future plans for Elijah. But God's response is not to come and to shame Elijah. God's response is, yeah, you need some rest. You need some food, buddy. And so what, it, what happens is, God goes ahead, go ahead, let, lets Elijah have some rest. God provides some food. And then once Elijah is recharged, God takes Elijah and through the power of God's spirit, uses Elijah in powerful ways. And you know what's amazing about this story? God doesn't come to Elijah and zap him. He could have said, keep moving, Elijah, don't stop. I got work to do, you know? God used a nap. God uses naps for his glory. You know, one thing I love is that Jesus was really good at napping. We know this because, and, and he never dropped things either. We know this. <laughs> he, we know that somebody's napping right now. We know this because there's that story of Jesus in the boat. And the thing I find amazing is Jesus could sleep through a storm. He was one of those kind of nappers. Some of you have that gift, and we all envy you, Okay. <laughs> All right? My, my wife comes from a superior culture. She's from Mexico. And in Mexico, they've institutionalized the nap. You know, in my marriage, I get no guilty, you know, looks from having a nap. I don't ever get, a, like, a nap, you know, like, none of that. It's like, oh, of course you should nap. Praise God for Mexico and Mexicans. <laughs> Maxim number five, children get it. Children get it. If you need a mentor in your life to teach you about leisure, I want to recommend children. Children are incredibly adept at doing leisure well. Children naturally engage in wonder and exploration and imagination, and children have this ability to live in the moment. It's incredible. There's no disconnect between their minds and their emotions and their bodies, and some of us have spent a lot of time and money in order to have that kind of unconscious unity that these children have. And what's even more astounding is children have the capacity to exult in monotony. They have such a zest for life that they can just exult in monotony. And some of you are like, yeah, I know. Do it again, Dad, I know. G.K. <laughs> Chesterton writes this. Because children have abounding vitality, because they are in spirit fierce and free, therefore they want things repeated and unchanged. They always say, do it again! And the grown-up person does it again until he's nearly dead. For grown-up people are not strong enough 
to exult in monotony. But perhaps God is strong enough to exult in monotony. It's possible that God says every morning, do it again to the sun, and every evening, do it again to the moon. It may not be automatic necessity that makes all daisies alike. It may be that God makes every daisy separately, but has never got tired of making them. It may be that he has the eternal appetite of infancy, for we have sinned and grown old, and our Father is younger than we. Profound thought. But all around in creation, we see a God who has a certain zest and exuberance. Children are our mentors. Jesus said, let the children come to me. Don't stop, because such are the kingdom of heaven. Children are incredibly good at leisure. And they're an awful lot of a picture of what it means to be in the kingdom of heaven. Is this a coincidence? I don't think so. Maxim number six. Play takes practice. Now, of course, possibly the thing children are best at is play, right? Children know how to play. They have a knack for it. And this is another thing we can learn from them. You know, play is incredibly important because when we engage in play, it's a certain kind of leisure activity where our, this, our imagination um, moves us into a place of self-forgetfulness as we engage in the game, right? Something happens that social scientists call flow. When you begin engaging in the game, what can happen is you start getting lifted up through this kind of absorbed attention and your total focus of your emotions and your body and your engagement, and suddenly you're in the flow. And when you've really had a great game, whatever it is, you move out of that and there's a certain elation, right? You know what I'm talking about? Um, so, Romano Guardini, I'm Italian heritage, so I have to use the Italian accent. Romano Guardini was a famous liturgical theologian, and he made this point. He said this. He said, there's one thing in this world that worship is most like. You know what it is? Play. Play. Think about this for a second. Uh, when we enter into worship, we enter into a world in which our entire, our emotions, our body, our mind, everything should become filled with absorbed attention such that our actions and our focus become seamlessly aligned and we experience that same experience you experience in play. So if you think about it, you know, week after week, if you're on a soccer team, you get together, you engage, you, you know the rules, you engage in the certain practice, and through that process, you enter into that state called play, and it transforms you. A good game will transform your feelings. But we come here week after week, and we engage in the same practices in absorbed attention to God, and it transforms us. We were made for play, and we were made for worship. And by the way, if you get good at play, you have an idea of how to be good at worship. And if you want to understand how to play, think a little bit about what happens when you worship. So we were made for both. And those who know how to merge play and worship are caught up in chariots of fire. Do you know how to merge play and worship? If you do, you are blessed indeed. Maxim number seven, the birds and the flowers get it. Jesus said, consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. 
they don't have storehouses to store up their food for the next day. They don't have barns. Every day they get up, God just feeds them. Don't you realize you're of so much more value than birds? And how in the world, by being anxious, can you add a single minute to your life? If you're not able to add a minute to your life, why be anxious about anything else in your life? Look at the flowers. Look how they grow. They don't get up early to get their hair done. They don't get up early to get all their vitamins and everything else. Look at them. I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory didn't look nearly as beautiful as these flowers. And if God decks out the grass and the flowers, which is alive today and then tomorrow is dead, don't you think he's going to take care of you and clothe you, you with little faith? True rest, being able to just lay down at night, put your head on that pillow, and sleep in spite of all the loose ends in our lives, and there's always loose ends, is an act of faith. Leisure at its core is an act of faith. Putting down the day's issues and embracing the simple pleasures when you come in the door, smiling at your spouse, enjoying the meal, enjoying dinner, taking in something else besides work, all of that can be an act of faith. And sleep is possible. True sleep is possible when you believe in the hands of a sovereign God. The verse that was read uh, by John this morning, um, I want to read it again. This is the message translation. If God doesn't build the house, the builders only build shacks. If God doesn't guard the city, the night watchman might as well nap. If God doesn't show up in the sermon, the preacher might as well not even study, okay? It's useless to rise early and go to bed late and work your fingers to the bone. I love this. Don't you know he enjoys giving rest to those he loves? God loves and wants to give us rest. But in order for him to give us rest, we have to stop playing God. Maxim number eight, see the inscape, see the inscape. The word inscape was created by the Jesuit poet, Gerald Manley Hopkins, and it's the unique inner nature of something as shown in a work of art. You can spend time exploring your favorite poem, and as you read about something through the lens of poetry, you start seeing things about that thing that you never saw before. Or you can go to a museum, and you can see a piece of visual art that is exploring some subject, and because of the capacity and the aesthetic interest of visual art, you start to see facets, but it takes contemplation. It takes time in order to unpack it, and something happens. Your mind opens up. You can sit down with a beautiful piece of music, and you can absorb it in such a way, and over and over, you can read more about the composer, and something begins to unfold in front of you. This is inscape. The, the nature, the unique nature of something becomes exposed. But we can do this not only with human artists, but also with God, the ultimate artist. On Father's Day, a couple years ago, my wife and my daughter and I were up Mount Wilson Trail, first water, and if you go a little bit farther back there, there's all these newts. Newts are cool. I grew up in newts in, in Santa Cruz Mountains area, 
You flip over, they got those fire bellies. We just did some inscaping of newts. We were like, look at these things. We spent a good hour and a half just looking at the newts, checking them out, watching how they're interacting. Like that little world popped open to us in that, in that moment of leisure. You can go to the largest state park in California, Anza Borrego Desert. Some of you who have never been there, shame on you. There is so much inscape to the glory of God in Anza Borrego de- Desert. You can spend some time with the flora and fauna of the San Gabriels. I have a professor in seminary who takes seriously Jesus' command to consider the flowers, and he has spent 20 years just enjoying the inscape of the flowers. He says it's changed his spiritual life to be able to see just the flowers in this region. That's only possible with leisure. Two weeks ago, I was in Kauai doing some research on leisure. On the first night there, Kenya and I were having a theological conversation about biblical language, and, um, and I made the point that all language in the Bible is analogous. In other words, there is no direct one-to-one correlation between descriptions of God and who God is because all human language, uh, it's a long story, but I basically illustrated it with this. I said, honey, I said, you know, when the Bible says that God covers us under the shadow of his wings, it's not saying God is a hen and we're chickens but it's illustrating that God has this kind of nurturing, protective quality in which he can take us in. And I kid you not, the next morning, who shows up? (laughs) We are sitting on that little porch, and here comes a mother hen with her 10 chicks. And she gets within two feet of us on our porch, and she does one of these things, and all those chickens just come right in underneath her. Me and Kenya were like, wow, Lord, you do love us. (laughs) And we sat there, and we just sat there just like, no freaking way. And then we started noticing, if you go to Kauai, there's a lot of chickens everywhere, okay? It's actually kind of a problem, but we, we started reading about chickens, you know? I mean, we spent a lot of money to go study chickens in Kauai over that week. Let me just tell you, we, we were talking about the chickens. We noticed the chickens everywhere. We had inscape of chicken, okay? But you know what? We learned some powerful truths about God that we wouldn't have ever noticed if we just had to get in there, get our business done, and fly out of Kauai. God has that reserved for us if we're willing to go there and listen to him. So see the inscape. Number nine, God is infinitely happy. God is infinitely happy. St. Anselm said, God is someone than whom none greater can be conceived. In other words, God is the most perfect being conceivable. If you can conceive of a more perfect being, then the being you're conceiving is not God. It's actually the, the most perfect conceivable being. He has no flaws is what this means. God has no needs, no limitations. Before he created the world, God was not sitting around twiddling his thumbs, kind of bored, kind of what do I do today, another day, you know, in eternity. God is complete in himself. The theologian Jonathan Edwards writes, God is infinitely happy in the enjoyment of himself, imperfectly beholding and infinitely loving and rejoicing in his own essence and perfection. Let that sit for a second. God did not make the world to solve a problem within God's self. God finds simple joy 
in his own existence, extreme joy in his own existence, his own essence, his own perfections. God is not a being who is defined by his doing. God is infinitely happy. This is the Christian God. So the question here is, how much are we like God? Are we ever able to reflect God in this way? God is infinitely happy, and we are called to find great joy in our own existence, in being alive as a creature of God. And one of the ways that we can, in a small way, reflect God is delighting in being creatures with bodies, bodies that can climb mountains and ride bikes and eat food and, yes, throw axes. I did see what somebody did in our church recently. Bodies that are able to create and minds they're able to create, and imaginations they're able to create through painting and drawing, through designing, through cooking, through writing, poetry, through music, celebrating the God-given capacity to imagine, to analyze, to contemplate, reading a good piece of fiction, or philosophizing, or uh, listening to a stimulating lecture. No, sorry, Austin Powers, it's not about regressing into some kind of stuck juvenile thing. Leisure is about entering deeper into our humanity, the humanity that God has given us with great joy and praise. So here's a question, class. How does a rock glorify God? It glorifies God by being a rock. That's what it does. And and when Kenny and I are hiking, one of the things I love about, she's my favorite theologian, one of the things I love about my wife and she'll point out some little critter, a little squirrel or something. She'll say, do you see that squirrel? At some level, I think that squirrel knows that God made that squirrel to be a squirrel, and that squirrel is completely okay with being a squirrel. No desire at all to be a goat or a bear. That deep kind of contentment, thank you, God, for making me me. That is part of the heart of leisure. The psalmist says it well. I love you, Lord, my strength, for because of you, I can run and charge a troop. Because of you, I can leap over a wall. Because of you, I can charge down this hill on my mountain bike. Because of you, I can bake this beautiful pie. Because of you, Lord, I have the capacity to be creative and imagine. Because of you, who is God but the Lord and who is a rock except our God, the God who equipped me He has made my feet like the feet of a deer and set me secure on the heights. Leisure starts when we take on some character trait we have because of God's goodness and his gift, and we find great joy and contentment in that, and we praise God for that because of our embodied capacities of movement, imagination, creativity, etc. Maxim number 10, dress to protest. What does this mean? Okay, what does this mean? There's a really fascinating verse in the book of Ecclesiastes chapter 9. In Ecclesiastes chapter 9, it begins with this. It says, uh, what do we do in the face of death's obliterating power? And if you ever sit down and think about this for a second, that everything about who we are and all the things we care about, someday we will be dead and gone, and no one will even know the drama and the things that we thought were so important. You know, I, when, when my... Uh, uh, I knew somebody that passed away, and, and, and uh, I was charged, because no one else wanted to do it, to go and get all the stuff out of the house. 
because they had to turn that house around and sell it. I don't know if you've ever been in that situation, but I had no time. I had time to put the stuff on Craigslist. And like, I had to get it out within three days. At the end of the day, we ended up getting a giant dumpster, and we ended up just shoveling it all. And I knew how much I care about my things. But that was a wake-up call to the power of the obliterating, disappearing power of death. And if you are serious about reflecting on death, it can lead you to a place where you say, who cares? Why? This is the context of Ecclesiastes chapter 9. But in the face of the obliterating power of death, there's this wonderful verse. Let your garments always be white. I actually usually wear a white shirt, but today I thought I'd step it up for the leisure. Because I think it actually expresses what this verse is about. White was a color that meant it was your nice stuff. And white symbolizes something fresh. And, and, and the next verse says, let there always be oil on your head. And here's the point. The point is, we can engage and embrace the small pleasures of life as a protest against death. And as people of the resurrection, we should. We need to not take ourselves so seriously. I almost wore a bow tie. I have a bow tie that, if you look really closely, it's got little crosses and skulls, you know? And it's kind of like, I used to like to wear it kind of like, you know what, death? Jesus, Jesus bested you. And yeah, I'm wearing a bow tie, so deal with it, you know? So finding the pleasure in those little meanings, taking those simple pleasures in life, such as buying flowers, wearing delightful clothing, enjoying something small. And, and may we never, as people of the resurrection, stop doing those things that say yes to life, right? Saying yes to life. You don't need to go and to make it look nice, the table and, you know, light a candle, but, you know, we're going to say yes to life because we are people of the resurrection. So dress to protest. And then my final maxim, maxim number 11, you were made for pleasure. You were made for pleasure. My argument this morning has been that leisure really matters. Leisure is a deeply Christian concept. We see leisure in the Bible. Leisure is not something we're going to give over to Austin Powers, you know, and all these other people. No, leisure is it's what we believe in. We believe there's a time in which you stop working because there's other parts of our humanity that God wants to make alive. And I want, to include, I want to conclude this message with what sociologists call an ultimate question. And here is this ultimate question. Why are you here? What were you made for? What is life ultimately about? A number of very bright people got together and thought about that question for a long time, a number of Christians, and they came up with this answer. The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. We glorify God when we offer a small picture of God's own infinite happiness. We glorify God when we take note of all the things that God has given us, and with great joy and pleasure, we thank God for those things. We glorify God when we take the small pleasures in life and we embrace them. We let the, just let it run down your cheek, it's okay. You can wipe it off in a second, but enjoy that burger. 
We glorify God when we ultimately enjoy God. We were made to enjoy God forever. Taste and see that the Lord is good. You know, to be a Christian is to, acqui- to have acquired a taste for the most delicious thing in the universe. Actually, technically outside of the universe. It's to have acquired a taste for the ultimate beauty, the very cauldron of joy and infinite happiness, and to know that you were meant to feast on the ultimate pleasure. And we can do that. Leisure is the training ground. It's the training ground to delighting and enjoying God. So summer's over. Um, okay. I don't know how the vacation went. Maybe some of you just already went right back into it. You don't even remember vacation. But the good news is, is that every day we come home from work, every day we have the chance to rest, to enjoy a good meal, to look, uh, you know, at some beauty, to smell the roses, to take in something that we find simple pleasure in. Every weekend, God says, I've given you a rest. Take it in. Enjoy it. It's how we come to know who God is. Summer might be over, but we don't have to wait to enter into holy leisure. So I want to close with this. When was the last time you felt deeply rested? When was the last time you caught yourself enjoying something so much you could not get the smile off your face? When was the last time you rode a bike, flew a kite, did something creative? When was the last time you let the sun just hit your face and feel that and the wind on your skin and the sand between your toes? Has it been too long? Taste and see that the Lord is good. Let's pray. Lord, we acknowledge that too often we settle for something so much less than the joy and the pleasure and the rest that you want to give us. You want to give us deep rest. You want us to live life fully. You want us to have our humanity back. And we ask, Lord, that by your grace, we might be a community that knows how to taste and see that you are good as we taste and see that life is good. Life is gift. Life is your grace. And we pray in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen.